Thomas, it's uh, just been announced that new restrictions will be introduced in workplaces and nightclubs will be closed. Nightclubs for me are an evolving feast. They're not what they were and they've got to be multifaceted to move forward. But the figures that we've got now uh, are showing that costs have gone up 40%. In the last three years, 13,000 businesses have been lost. So the clubs themselves, in pre-pandemic, 1,446 nightclubs existed in the UK and there's less than 900 now. But we're talking about the survival of businesses here. You know, we're talking about a lot out there that have suffered in the last three, four years now and just need that little bit of hope. Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Mike Kill is a figurehead of the UK nightclub scene and has become a strong advocate of the nighttime industry. We talk about his time in the thriving club days and the increasing challenges facing the UK scene today across nightclubs and festivals. This is the eventful life of Mr. Mike Kill. Mike, welcome to the show, mate. No, thank you. Thanks for inviting. We finally made it down here. So, uh, yeah, just really pleased to get down and back to my old stomping grounds. Yeah, mate. Looking forward to this one very much. Uh, Let's roll all the way back, Mike. Where did you grow up and how did you get into the world of festivals and events? uh, To be honest with you, my father was in the forces, so I spent a lot of time abroad. Uh, I came back here and uh, to be honest with you, I started working in the theatre and I dropped back down and in the middle of Portsmouth, actually, and started working in a club and... Almost uh, 25 years later, I'm sort of uh, developed, been uh, part of festivals, events, run live mm. music venues. So I've done a huge array of things, mm. really. Um, but the most important thing is, I mean, I've been behind a bar and I've done the things that possibly people wouldn't think I would have done. Yeah. Well, you've pretty much done everything in the events world, haven't you? Very much so. Yeah. I mean, run my own festivals. <clears throat> I was a drum and bass promoter for years. I used to do hospitality in Kent. We used to do the sort of big raves till six, eight in the morning. Mm. Uh, did a lot of things with sort of Ram Records, did UK Garage, uh, obviously, when that was the scene. Um, and that abruptly came to an end because it, it was quite it? challenging. It was the, quite naughty, wasn't it? It was. I mean, <laughs> I, I used to do Time and Envy in Romford on a Thursday night, mm. which was, it was ramoed for about seven years. Mm. And then it, it all went sort of down a different line and yeah. went to sort of change up so tough times but that's that's what sort of year we're talking here we're talking early 2000s yeah Yeah. really i mean time and envy and romford opened in 2000 yeah uh, at the time that home uh, and those sort of venues were opening in london home do you remember that i remember it on the corner yeah and fabric was open at the same time so you know we had a tough tough thing to get people to come out to romford but i think it was where essex kind of met the east end so it was quite colorful and as you can imagine there were there were some interesting times there but i mean i I took so much from it, a huge amount of learning from doing events and managing that space. Mm. So. And what sort of route did you go? How old were you when you started getting that events world? Roughly. I was, I was probably early 20s when I, I started getting into the sort of clubs. I kind of dropped into it and then, 
you know, the big thing for me is I already had that interest in, in promoting and being networking. I was very good at networking, yeah. that's what I was saying. I mean, I came over to Bournemouth and I, I worked at the Cajun Zoo in Bournemouth for some time. Um, and, uh, you know, people like Richard Carr came and saw me and said, well, come and work for me doing some networking. Did you work with Richard, did you? I didn't in the no, end. No, okay. I stayed where I was <laughs> and it kind of worked for the better for me. Yeah. But, you know, I know Richard and the colourful character that yeah. he is. And it was just, uh, you know, I, I developed from there. But mm. I came known for being a promoter, yeah. getting out there, you know, mucking in, you know. Flyering, postering, oh, getting people's faces, chatting. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, yeah. I, I had this big thing. I mean, if you think about the simplicity of flyering in the early days, mm. it was about quality of paper. That's right. You know, spot you. If you had an A5, exactly. and it was, remember if it was like shiny A5 and the feel and the touch, everyone would talk about flyers, wouldn't they? Oh, of course. It, it, yeah. was, it was just surreal. It was almost, you, you sort of, you know, you knew the quality of the event by the yeah. type of paper that yeah, was being used right. and all that. And, and the other thing was, is I used to get so frustrated with people because, you know, if you give it, there was a difference between giving flyers out and giving flyers out to people who wanted to fly yeah. out. Yeah. I'd rather have 5,000 wants than yeah. 5,000, you know, I might as well throw them in the bin and it used to frustrate me. One you know? of the best skills, I must have handed out over 10, 20 million flyers <laughs> in my time as a promoter from 99 onwards in that 10-year period. There's two things you get out of this. You got, I always look at it, you've got to have a, an event that's, that's marketable, yeah. but you've got to have the right people around you to market it. Yeah. You know, you can have the best event in the world, but people don't know about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, someone said to me, quite a renowned guy, guy called Stephen Thomas, who started... Luminate said, look, best He lights. was the top dog at Luminate. He was. End, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Funny enough, my, my wife used to work for him quite closely, mm. and I, you know, me and him had our run-ins. And, yeah. But, I mean, he, he passed away last year, sadly. Has he, he passed away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't really know sad that. time. I mean, we were talking, he was helping us out doing NTIA stuff. and, and How did he pass? Uh, I, in the middle of work. As you'd expect, because wow. he was so he was committed. Grafter, he? Yeah, he was a grafter. But he said to me, he said, look, great lights, great sound, great club. But without people, you've got nothing. Yeah. And the reality is, is that always resonates with yeah. me. So, you know, you can only be successful with people attending and being part. So in the, in the 2000s then, so what was your route then? Were you actually going into clubs promoting, taking the door money, taking the bar money? Or were you working for, on behalf of the club? I was working for the club uh, initially. And then I came away and started doing my own thing. I mean, the UK garage scene was something where I was working for the club but I was in control of the, the Thursday nights yeah. and you know we had we had the like I mean Dizzy Rascal mentions in his one of his first tracks that Thursday night in Romford yeah. from UK Garage <laughs> yeah. you know Dwayne Chambers was a regular yeah. and we you know I remember EZ coming and playing for I mean you never hear it now a couple yeah. of hundred, a couple quid. hundred quid I was yeah, about to say, yeah I know yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know you had Chris Creed and all these sort of really iconic people that are an active part on on rotation mm. but on those days you know mm. I'll tell you what I loved that garage scene and we were throwing parties in a club in Wandsworth which was a really naughty area remember the old theatre yeah, the yeah, yeah yeah and then that garage scene become naughtier and naughtier then I think the police and council just had to close the whole thing down uh, we, I mean, we had the same problem in yeah. Romford. I mean, you know, we we had this really successful, nice, nice, bumpy, very sort yeah. of, you know, uh, absolutely super successful yeah. night. And then we had one moment, one night, we had a confrontation yeah. and the police closed it down. It yeah. was horrendous. To get to where you are today, just so the listeners know, where are you at today? Because you're the, one of the biggest figureheads in the UK at the moment on the events, hospitality, bar, club, the whole thing. I think, uh, do you know what? I I went through a period where I was operational for a lot. I did a lot of promoting. I did a lot of marketing, yeah. starting off at uh, a, a club in Portsmouth and then went all the way through doing a lot of marketing and doing openings initially. Mm. And I made my mark in sort of uh, 
Rank Leisure was the, the initial mm. period. Then it went over to Northern and then it went over to Luminar. So what I did is built myself up. Yeah. I was then told I'd never be an operator. And if I'm going to be honest, I mean, they always said to me, well, you, you don't know how to operate. You don't know how to run a bar. You don't know how to do this. And in those days, if you didn't know how to run a bar, you couldn't yeah. run a venue. Mm. And I was like, I can. I can I can understand it. Yeah. I don't need to be part of it. Yeah. So I got through all of that. I then came away um, because I said, look, enough's enough. I was going to go and do my own thing. Went back into Romford. And the next thing you know, I sort of developed, got my own venue, became a general manager. Yeah. But my, my last post within that corporate world yeah. really was I, I was running sort of uh, music within marketing for Luminar. Okay. And the challenge I had with all of it is I was presenting a lot of things and they weren't getting it. Yeah. So, for instance, I was saying, look, we need to get Chasing Status, Pendulum, yeah. all these sorts of things. Oh, no, 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 drum and bass, can't put drum and bass, yeah, it's okay. too this and that. And I'm like, look, it's going to go off onto a live tip, it's going to yeah. be massive. I then left and went to Oxford and ran a venue and it all kicked off. And the next thing you know, I was getting phone calls saying, can you help us book? Yeah. Can you do this? Can you do that? And I said to him at the time, I said, you missed an opportunity. Yeah. You need to have confidence in your people. Yeah. And that's probably one of my frustrations. But it developed from there. I went mm. to work for something called the Drinks Group, which was like a, a group which I looked after with a guy called Martin King um, and did very well there. But there was quite a broad spectrum. Then I was the commercial director for the student union at uh, University of East Anglia. Uh, my father passed away during that, and I also had a, a young boy at that time, so it was a lot of pressure. I was what sort of about. time? What sort of year were we talking? Uh, that was about. Cool. Now you're saying uh, it was about two sixteen, two seventeen. Two sixteen. So now, how old were you in two sixteen? Oh, well, I'm fifty now. I was yeah, fifty okay. in January, so, so mid forties. Yeah, about okay. mid forties. So okay. it took a while to get to where I, yeah. I needed to be. Yeah. Um, and then I came back and uh, and I was already doing some stuff for the NTIA as a trade organisation. So the NTIA? Um, yeah, so 2015, I, I, that's when it started. I nighttime in, Industry Nighttime Industries Association. Association, yeah. I got involved in it doing a lot of the back office stuff, so I was getting all the infrastructure and organisation. And things took a turn. There, there was a change in management, a change in what was going on, and... Uh, they came away and uh, I sort of stepped in and stepped up as a CEO and sort of, right, okay, where do I go from here? Yeah. Started building, getting the back office stuff, getting the right people involved, the infrastructure, started building it into the right... Building? What were you trying to build? The, the challenge we had it was we had a great concept that was built off the back of fabric closing. Yeah. So if you remember when fabric yeah, was closed down fabric. because of death, yeah, yeah, it was horrendous. So the NTIA, I actually love fabric, but actually, did it actually get closed down because of the death, or was it, or were the council around there going, we're not wanting this in here anymore? The the problem you have is overregulation with yeah. everything. So what had happened is they turned around and they went, look, we need to close it. Any any time that there is a death within a venue, the first port of call is closed yeah. or take to a review. Yeah. So what happened is there was an uproar because fabric was monumental in yeah. the industry. So what they did is, and what we did as a trade organisation on the initial sort of path was get involved yeah. and really ramp up over alongside Fabric and others, ramped up this hundred odd thousand people that went head to head with the police and, you oh. know, really sort of drove them to come back to the table. And, you know, we re-established getting Fabric back open. Yeah. And what was brought off the back of it, there was a load of operators and others turning around and going, this can't happen again. You know, we had experiences with chief superintendents who were turning around and saying, listen, if we can't cut crime, then we're going to start closing venues. 
And if you think that attitude was yeah. just so wrong, it's not the business's fault. They're not yeah. committing the crime. They want safe spaces yeah. as much as anything else. Yeah. But, you know, when you've got police officers saying those sort of things, mm. it's, it's counterproductive. So, anyway. The, how, the, did, how did that person die? Uh, I think it was a drugs uh, issue. Okay. So, so as soon as drugs is mentioned, the old bill jumps straight on it, the council jump on it, and it's a great excuse well, to say, let's close it down. But you, but you have to, I mean... I don't mean that in a bad way, because it's not an excuse, because it's, it's, it's awful that someone had passed away in there. But the amount of people that go clubbing, compared to the amount of people that die, is very minimal. It is. And, and I think the thing about it is we've really got to draw this back to accountability. Yeah. Who is accountable for someone taking those drugs? What tends to happen is when things like that, the police look for fault. They look for fault with insecurity. They look fault for operation, what was going on, the type of music, etc. It's always about fault. Mm. This whole thing about collaborative working environment is not as genuine as everyone would expect. And when you talk about drugs in particular, you know, there is always that look for fault. Mm. The accountability has to sit at some point with the person who decided to take those drugs, tragic yeah. as the situation is, and no one wants anyone to, you know, pay with their life. But the reality is, is businesses are working hard. They're over-regulated. The police are on them constantly. But when it comes to a fault, it just shows how fickle yeah. businesses are and how easy it is for you to lose your business, mm -hmm. you know. I speak to people every day and they sit there and they go, do you know what I'm just I'm worried about doing this or I'm worried about doing this because you know it only takes one thing to go wrong yeah. and the next thing I've lost my business yeah. and that's my livelihood gone yeah. well, and there's a lot of jobs. risk there's a lot of moving parts in live events whether it's festivals or mm. nightclubs there's moving parts everywhere isn't there oh huge I mean yeah. we've we've seen it with you know recently with the the O2 um, in Brixton, Brixton. Uh, we've seen it with Crane in Birmingham you know we saw it with the Oval Space which which closed in London there was so just let's just go back to that Brixton Tell me what happened at that night in Brixton when... Well, they're still investigating. I mean, it's a difficult one. Did to one person die? No, One two. two people died. There was a member of security who passed and uh, a member of public who passed who was in intensive care. But it was built off the back of a crush. Now, without sort of going into it too detailed, because it's very difficult, because there's an ongoing investigation, as you can appreciate with all of this, there is a lot of pressure on the operator or the security company to find out who did something wrong. And those operators have been doing this for years. Yeah. This is the first incidence of this scale. So you can appreciate, no one's accounting for historical presence of good practice. What we're sat on is where things went wrong and pointing fingers and all these sort of, and it, it makes it very difficult. It makes it very difficult for owners and operators, you know, in terms of the stability and long-term, you know, uh, planning for business. Do we know what actually happened that night? No, there's, there's still a lot to be worked out. The police are still investigating. Was the event sold out? As I understand it was, but, I mean, don't, you know, don't quote me on that okay. one. I mean, it's still... Because it's, it's like I heard the event was sold out, and then people were just desperate to get in. I can't remember who was playing. Do you remember who was playing? Um, I think it was an Afrobeat artist. Yeah, I can't okay. remember the yeah, name of the yeah. artist. But. And uh, I heard that people just bolted the gate straight through the security and they just wanted to go in the sea. And as we know, Brixton Academy isn't massive. No. You know, and it's on a tilt and it's probably one of the best venues for me, in my opinion, in London, maybe even in the country, for that feel, for that vibe. Yeah. So did did they did people pop past the security, shove the security out, and was it a stampede? I, I like you say, I don't know. Don't fully know. Uh, okay. No, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to turn around and yeah, suggest so, I know. Okay. It, I mean, the difficult part is, is at the moment they're looking into it and, and seeing what's going on. And I know the police are very cautious about... Saying the wrong thing. Saying the wrong thing, yeah. because I think it's got to have a full and yeah. thorough investigation. 
the sad bit about it is two people have passed. Yeah. Um, what I do know is is it's obviously a a large corporate that owns it. Yeah. Um, so you know they've been doing this a long time. They know the the protocols. They know what they're doing. The challenge that you have is is long term how that's going to resonate yeah. because you know it's it's saddening to think that people have lost their life yeah, because really of it. Sad. But where things how that's come about, you know, we're, we're yet to really understand. Does it, like the knock-on effect of this whole COVID and, and everything that we've seen in the pandemic with not enough security, not enough bar staff, not enough people just in that industry to get behind, we've lost so many people, so much security. I want to know if that security team there had years and years of experience or were there new people working there? Difficult one. I mean, as you can appreciate, I mean, I'll talk quite openly. I also run something called the UK Door Security Association. Yeah. And we sit there. I mean, we were talking, I think, uh, last year about 80% of pre-COVID resource in terms of numbers. So give, give, me, give me an example. So pre-COVID, say if you had 2,000 doormen. Yeah. After COVID, that reduced down. You well, left with, you'd left, we're left with 400. Uh, no, 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 no. Twenty percent. So it's twenty percent so off. So oh, just twenty percent off. Yeah. So I've, I've, I would have thought that had been a lot. From my experience and what I'm seeing, I'd have thought that percentage would have been a lot bigger. Well, funny you should mention it. So what happens is, come the nineteenth of July when we reopen. Of what year? Uh, that was last year. Twenty-two. Okay. No, not twenty-two. Twenty-one. Twenty-one. Sorry. Okay. So when we reopened, the challenge that you had was everybody. So the nighttime economy had closed. Yeah. So all those people that were earning money off the door, yeah. or they went and found jobs elsewhere. Yeah. There was a requirement right the way across the board for things like people squirting sanitizers outside B and M, yeah. and you know all these sort of things. So all of those roles were taken up. But you also have to remember that the COVID testing sites also sucked up yeah. a lot of those security, and they would be paying good money, yeah. eighteen pound an hour. Yeah. The challenge that we had is once we got to that opening period. It was almost like they switched it on, but they didn't give us enough time to re, you yeah. know, rekindle those resources. Yeah. So we were we were at a real sort of challenging loss. Mm. And what people were going is, I don't want to come back because it's, it's uncertain. Yeah. What's going to happen? You're going to close at Christmas. Yeah. If I come back now and leave what I've got, which is secure, yeah. then it's a challenge. But pre-COVID, what you had was you had a resonating issue where security because the number of nights of operation were being reduced because trade was very difficult, a lot of people were coming away from the door anyway because mm. they don't want to work six hours mm. over two nights or, you know, 12 hours over two nights. Mm. It's just not enough money. Mm. And then the other thing is, is because a lot of people work part-time, it's top-up money, they're getting 40% tax as well. Mm. And the problem you've got at the moment is last year, uh, sorry, the year before last, so I keep remembering in the early part of it, the year before last, they introduced a new training scheme which takes five and a half days to do, and then you've also got to do the first aid course before you get in. What, so to get your SIA badge? To get your SIA badge so as if, a new operator. So if so, you're new, if I wanted to go and work the doors, I've got to go and do a five and a half day course. And you've got to do your first aid course before, before you can get Before I can go and work the that. door. So as you can imagine, if, I'm a, if I've got a full Who's paying for that? Oh, you would pay for it as How an much opera, sort of, what sort of 500 money? quid plus. You're joking me. So if you're, if you're thinking about going into the security sector, the challenge you've got is if you're part-time or say you've got a full-time job in a week and you, you want to go, right, I work on the weekends, yeah. you've got to take a week off to train for your badge. So what you've done is that the, the security industry authority has really killed any part-time workers oh, coming man. into the sector. And then the other thing is, is HMRC have also said you can't be – can't work off a UTR now. We prefer you to work under PAYE. 
So, so what's a UTR? UTR is self-employed. Self-employed, okay. So what they're saying is if you're a security guard, you're gainfully employed. Therefore, you will need to uh, work off a PAYE, which means that those operating companies will have to pay you as part of their payroll. So if you've so got payroll in the week, you're going to get 40 So you're going to get taxed. So if you're on a 30 grand job and you're earning a bit of bunts on a Friday, Saturday night, you're not going to get that anymore. No. Because you're going to get taxed on it. But also, when I look at it, I'll have to look at the security, you go, why would I want to risk my life for 12, 13, 14, 15 pounds an hour when I can go work behind the bar and get 10, 12 pounds these well, days? 13 pounds 71 in Aldi. Yeah. Why would you, you know, why you want just, risk, why yeah. risk having a fight on a Saturday night? The, with the problem is, is the environment, the pay, uh, the training, the cost of training, all of it is just steering people away. So what they've actually done is killed the access, the market that's there to for us to access. They've almost barriered everything. But, I mean, what's happening now is you've got, I think over the price, you've got about 960 something called um, uh, accredited businesses to supply security. So they pay a certain amount of money to the SIA, which means they're gold standard. Yeah. But it's a voluntary accreditation scheme. So what happens is those companies, because they're, it's only voluntary, you don't have to do it, mm. um, you are put in a position where you can, there is no value outside of you working within government contracts. So in the process of that sort of happening, we've now got something like 4,000 security companies operational in the country that are untracked by HMRC, untracked by the SIA, that are getting away with circumventing tax and also paying cash on door. So when you look at the really good quality operators of security, they're losing contracts because of the flexibility in the operation of these sort of ad hoc businesses who can open and close and lose tax and not pay and not insure and et cetera, et cetera. So at the moment, the security uh, industry in terms of door security is quite rogue. Mm. Um, and they're looking at re-evaluating, but they need to move quickly. The problem you've got is that when, when bouncers come on the scene, when I was growing up, living above pubs in London, the bouncers come on the scene in the late 80s, you didn't have to have a badge. If no. you were the hardest man in the town, you'd get five of your mates, you'd wear a bomber jacket, and that's how it was. Are you saying that that could come back around again? The challenge that you've got is you've definitely you've got security operators that are licensed, which is not a problem. The issue you've got is the quality of supply in yeah. terms of training, vetting, yeah. right to work, all these sort of things, and not being dealt with by yeah. the ad hoc businesses. So what's happening is all the good work that's being done by the 900 or businesses yeah. that are ACS, you've got a lot of companies out, not all of them, because some of them are not accredited mm-hmm. and they do good work, but there's a lot out there that pop up. Um, a head, you know, a member of head security will yeah. take on a venue, a manage it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Get paid cash. Pay through UTR. Bearing in mind the UTR, if you think about it, these individual operatives are just taking extra cash. They're not paying their insurance to cover themselves. So there's no insurance to cover them. Mm. And there's a big thing being moved forward at the moment with the HMRC, which is suggesting that if the security supplier is not accommodating uh, for people paying their tax, then the operator could be liable through an agency legislation. So. There's a lot of work that's being done in the background that's going to catch people out. Mm. But at the moment, we're going through the process of trying to give them a... If you had an SIA badge and you've been working the doors for years, pandemic hit, you didn't want to renew your badge because it cost you money. If you wanted to renew it now, they're still saying you've got to go and do a five-day course, pay 500 quid, and do a first-aid course. No, you can do a a top-up course. Okay, how long is that? Uh, I, I, I can't remember how long it is. Yeah. I think it's I don't I think it's about three or four days. I don't think it's a massive. But it's uh, still three or four days out of your work. 
that you've got to take off to go and do that, that you're going to get taxed 40% on to work I mean, we, we've spoke about part-time roles. We've talked about, you know, a part-time license. So you can work Friday and Saturday night yeah. um, so that people can get away, which is much reduced. Mm. It's much reduced in terms of training. But there's so much yeah. that, you know, that needs to be done security-wise. I mean, you know, we look at uh, Southern Ireland has got a business licensing scheme. If they had business licensing, it'd be great. But, you know, all these businesses that are un, unaccredited mm. are now rogue. Even HMRC don't know what they're doing. I mean, if you think about public safety, you talk about protect duty. You know, we're moving into protect duty. We can't even track who's doing our security on yeah. doors in some of the biggest public spaces yeah. across the country. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you think about that. that imagine like, as a festival owner like myself with Bournemouth mm. 7s, we've got 250 security each year. Last year in 2021, after the year after the pandemic, we got the Bournemouth Sevens back on back up and away in August. We had forty days notice to put the festival on. Yeah, at the back yeah. of it, we had to find two hundred and fifty security. We end up using like five or six different companies. Yeah, no, you can't mix. You cannot mix different companies and expect it to work to no. all gel together. Very well, difficult. No, yeah, no one to. I mean, everyone I speak to, event from Glastonbury all the way yeah. through, they're using five, six, seven, eight, nine yeah. companies. Park Life with Sasha, all the same issue. Mm. The biggest problem we've got at the moment is we've got a negative attrition rate. Mm. So where we're saying we're probably about th between 3 and 5% down in terms of total resource, what you're finding is that the attrition rate is about between 5 and 10%. So it doesn't matter what we're bringing in, we're losing more than we're gaining. But I, I, those, those stats seem too slim to me. They, well, you I, say, I can't see that. Yeah. I, I think them. Like I said earlier, about five minutes ago, when we said, "Oh, the eighty twenty I was thinking, "Oh, we're left with twenty percent, not left with eighty, and we've just lost twenty percent. See, but the thing about it is, when you look at the numbers, three hundred and sixty odd thousand um, doors, doors in yeah. circulation. Okay. But the challenge you've got is the SIA and the Home Office are saying, well, we've got you know two hundred and forty nine thousand door security badges in circulation, and then my view is, right, how many of them are active? Where are they? Uh, well, well, we yeah. don't know. Yeah. All right. How many are in this country? Yeah. We don't know. Okay, then. So that's irrelevant, that yeah. number, then, because it makes no sense. Yeah. And also, the other thing is, is you've got two types of badges. You've got a door security badge, and you've got a security guarding badge. Mm. They cost the same money, the same training. The door security badge will allow you to work on the door and in static guarding, yeah. where SG only allows you to work in one environment. So why would you do this badge? Yeah. You just do this one. Yeah. So it's a false economy. So there's two anyway. badges you can pick. Well, there's several badges. You've got CP, uh, close protection. protection. You've got CCTV. But the two that we're really relevant for us is the door security or frontline badge, yeah. which allows you to work in several sectors. Mm. But the, the static guarding one, which only allows you to work in offices, you know, that side of things, everyone's going to go for a door security yeah. badge. So yeah. when you question what the usage is, mm. where are you using those badges? Well, we don't know. Yeah. So the reality is, is we're sat in an environment with lots of businesses that have no tracking. HMRC no, don't know what they're doing yeah. or how they're working out. The SIA don't. And we've got a load of operatives where we don't know what the usage is. We don't actually know what the numbers are. So if we have a system or a, a, an industry resource-wise that crashes, yeah. given the fact that we're moving towards protect duty, yeah. You know, it's chaos. Mm. It's absolute mm. chaos. It needs ripped apart it does. and dealt with. Or otherwise, we are going to have an incident similar to the Manchester yeah. Arena issue, and that's the last thing that anybody wants. And what happened in that Manchester Arena? I mean, we go. We speak to Fegan Murray, who has been the sort of champion for 
protect you to your Martin's Law quite regularly. And, you know, for us, I mean, understanding what went on that night, there are there are some fail-safes that I think have, have been quite clearly documented or challenged and without going into further. This is 2017, was it? That's right, yeah. So Who was playing? Uh, Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande, that's right, yeah. So the the big thing really for us and the SIA and Home Office and, and security company that was on board and the people that looked after that, you know, have, have obviously highlighted in the report and the inquiry of exactly where things sit. And there were, they were failings right the way across the board without getting into it. But what came off the back of it was a more prepared and understood methodology around counter-terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way it's been moulded now, which has been released early part of this year, is the fact that uh, any business between 800, uh, between 100 capacity and 799 will have a light touch approach, which will include training and, and protocols in terms of requirement, in terms of CTs, so your country pub, proportionately would CT? be... CT? Uh, counter-terror, sorry. Counter, okay, yeah. I'm so used to working yeah. with <laughs> <laughs> It's just quicker. <laughs> So, you know, your country pub, which is of uh, less risk, will then still have to accommodate for a counter-terror plan, but not to the level required by the bigger businesses. So anything 800 capacity plus will then have to do uh, an event management plan, which most, you know, you you will do it, I'm sure, and you've got... It's like a 300-page event management plan. Exactly. You'll go through the SAG, et cetera. So a lot of these businesses... Safety advisory group. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, another acronym. (laughs) I'm going to kill myself (laughs) at some point. I'll get told off constantly. So, you know, you will go through the safety action group and they will advise and you will put things in place relevant. The worry we have is the ones that are 800 cap to about 2,000 cap housed venues, nightclubs, businesses that potentially haven't got as robust a programme as some of the big festivals and Mm. events, um, uh, but are required to do more uh, than the lower light touch sort Mm. of space venues. So that's where the challenge is. Mm. And then we get into security protocol, we get into the right people being in the right places. Mm. You know, if you can imagine, I mean, with Protect Duty coming on board, which they believe is going to be in in the next two years, we've got a lot of work to do to get the resource level Mm. up, get some sort of position in terms of the security sector particularly door security and guarding sector to a point that it's manageable is trackable because that's one of the biggest consistent counter-terror issues that we've faced i remember when that that happened that 2017 one i think it must have been two weeks before bournemouth sevens festival Mm. and it was like oh my god this is real we had police going around machine guns i was thinking just to protect everyone that they felt safe because they, everyone just had the massive fear, didn't they? Sniffer dogs, machine well, guns, and it was important for us. And at the time, I remember taking a photo of the security of the uh, of the police with machine guns. And I was thinking, is this a good thing or a bad thing to put it up on social media and let people know, mm. let the parents know that their kids are safe at this festival, the eighteen to thirty year olds? And it was probably the best thing we ever done. Yeah, because people came into the festival going, we feel secure. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I I worked uh, at the 2012 Olympics, yeah. um, so I used to run a bar in Brick Lane, and uh, we had uh, Puma Yard across the road, yeah, yeah. which, as you can appreciate, you know, at the end of any event was quite colourful. It was yeah. like it was. It, I mean, it was an amazing atmosphere. But the planning for Brick Lane, the planning for everything that happened, exactly what you said. You had people on. You know, you had police on the ground yeah. with with guns and. It did make people feel secure, but it also sort of erupted a few, you yeah. know, because people got overexcited. Yeah. And Brick Lane in particular was quite a volatile period, yeah. you know, uh, environment at that point anyway, because of things like my gangs and yeah. all these sort of things. So we, we had a lot to contest. You know, mm. it, it was it was a cha- it was interesting. 
But you know when you see you're on the tender hooks constantly, yeah. you're kind of over-planning yeah, rather than under-planning. And also when you do see that as a customer or a punter enjoying yourself and you see machine guns, you're thinking, what's this world coming to? What's going on? It's, it's bonkers. It's, yeah, I mean, uh, I, listen, uh, <laughs> I've seen some things in my time, but that the Olympics was a huge experience yeah. for us because, uh, you know, when you're sort of sat there and you, you know it's coming, you're talking about it and you're building up to it, you're prepping, you've got your security teams in, you then got you know, uh, New Scotland Yard coming and briefing your security yeah. teams and things starting to, and then it gets really serious. And then you're, you know, you see the the level of uh, exposure that the police have on the street and, and their movements and their yeah. quick response. And it, it, I mean, it, it was definitely an experience. Would I want to go through it again? No. I think once is enough yeah. for me, yeah. but um, yeah, it was quite intense. The responsibility, if you think about it, because you had, thousands of people up and down that street and particularly in the bar which was literally directly opposite Pume Yard yeah. where you had all these celebrities and yeah. people coming from around the and world and you're in Brick Lane and you're in Brick Lane <laughs> which <laughs> which was volatile yeah. at, you know at the best of time and you know now it's calmed a bit it's yeah. a bit more retail orientated mm. but at that time it was yeah it was a charity it was it was it was something that was yeah it was huge what have you what have you noticed in the whole since Brexit you know, like we've got uh, Eastern Europeans, they're working the bars, they're working, yeah. they're working in hospitality, they're working as waiters and waitresses. All of a sudden now you go to London, you go somewhere, everywhere you go, you're looking around waiting for service or something like that, and you chat to them, they've been understaffed, a chef hasn't turned up, but there's no, there's, there's no, there's not enough of them. It, it's, uh, do you know the interesting, I mean, I had a bit of a debate and argument the other week with, uh, uh, some of the civil servants about this and I said look you you're making it it's a lot easier for skilled workers to get in this country internationally than it is for you know basic stock general staff mm. we are missing and someone summed this up really well we have lost the Australian accents from yep. Camden yeah you know when you walked I remember going through yep. Camden in the pubs you South walk Africans, in Australians yeah, Kiwis all, all, all yep. of those all yep. around Camden and it's it's gone it's yep. disappeared um, and without a doubt, I think there's a real issue with the visas coming into country. We are seeing massively that artists are still having massive problems uh, getting what, into big, this. the big acts coming into the country. Big to acts do coming into this country. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, you know the visa the, the visa system is just not very fluid at the moment. Mm. It's causing a lot of issues. Um, I mean, we're having a similar problem with touring, uh, where um, you know engineers are having problems where they can't stay in a certain country for too long. They have to go outside the country and to come back, back in over touring, and it, it's it's just very chaotic. Yeah. When I mean, even talking about it now, talking about security, talking about the, you know, our industry is almost yeah. you know being given so many hurdles yeah. to overcome. It's ridiculous, but. You know, we, we are, I mean, when you talk to the agents and things, what they're doing is they're not concentrating on the UK anymore mm. in terms of a core business. They're actually going into Europe because it's easier. Yeah. And and when you hear about that, it's it's sad. sad. Because we're, we're elite, you know, we're globally renowned yeah. for our clubs, our festivals. Well, our, the culture in this country for nightclubs and festivals, we're the biggest and best in the world at what we do. Exactly. Yeah. But, but it's been stemmed by bureaucracy yeah. in many respects. And you've got a question I was, I mean, I questioned... Uh, Probably last year, I turned around and said, is the government willfully pulling this industry apart? Because yeah. you've got a question, you know, from the lack of support, from, you know, cost inflation, from Brexit, all of these things. It almost is inadvertently killing, killing culture it. in a sector. Yeah. And you've got to ask the question, is this with willful understanding that this is a direction of travel? I, I got chatting to a Lithuanian waitress in London a couple of weeks ago. 
and they were they weren't going to open that day. So I'm not going to mention the name, but it was the it was an amazing restaurant bar, and they were short staffed, short of everything. And I said to him, "How come you've stayed on?" He said, "Well, I was here before the Brexit. I've got my passport, etc." I said, "Where are all your friends?" They said, "They've all gone home." Mm. I said, "What have they got to do to get back into the country to carry on working in hospitality?" She said to me, "They've got to guarantee a twenty nine thousand pound a year job, guaranteed on paper, and then they've got to pay ten grand for a visa, and then the government will decide whether they're allowed back in or not to come and work." It's it's surreal. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's like you can't. You, you, you the just, chances are like one percent less. But it, but it's sta- everything stacked against yeah. us. I, I can't. You know, look. When, when I look at the visa system as it sits at the moment, it's so archaic, it's mm. so slow. But then again, you look at licensing, you look at planning, slow. You know, it slows investment, it slows in growth, it, sl- it slows, you know, the, the cross-fertilisation. I mean, you know, whether we like it or not, you know, people coming into this country added this flourish of, of colour and change and experience and skill set. Yeah. Because what we take from Lithuania or yeah. Poland or, uh, you know, work ethic or skill set was really important to the UK economy. Mm. And we've lost it. It's almost like they've withdrawn back to allow English workers to step up and do what they need to do. And I, I just think that it's, it's a really short sighted road. I think we took it for granted. Yes, I, I absolutely. Yeah, agree. I think we absolutely. took it for granted that we had loads of workers. I think people were very much like, why are there so many foreign workers working here? Why are the English people not getting the opportunities? Now the foreign workers are out. The English people don't want these opportunities, it seems. No. It, it, like it's, it's, it, it's one of those things I think, wow, we've got such a wonderful industry. Get into the nightclub, get into events, get into restaurants. Get the, There are opportunities everywhere right now. Yeah, no, no there is. And... and uh, I, I 100% agree with you. I think it's a mix of, of almost people, a false economy to a point, um, but I, do, I don't think the government is helping no. uh, in, in any way, shape or form. I, I think they have created more barriers than solutions. Um, but I think the worrying part for me is while we all sit here, instead of being quite blatant about mm. it, it's almost like it's, it's being put in place, but they inadvertently understand how it's going to impact, but are not doing anything yeah. effectively to change it. Yeah. How have you seen? How have you seen the nightclub world change from that moment where, when Boris spoke on March the twenty third, twenty twenty, to where it is today? We, uh, well, the one thing that we took umbrance to was the fact, and all the way through all these meetings was the fact that nightclubs were almost. Uh, exiled in many respects um we did a massive report Twenty-four thousand people we we had surveyed who, who highlighted the importance of nightclubs and if you remember when he did that speech he mentioned nightclubs yeah, three times that right. week first time he ever mentioned yeah. it and we we did absolutely hammer it home nightclubs for me um are an evolving feast right they're not what they were yeah. if you remember i talk about the days when there was a dj console and you could walk around the back of yeah. it and pop your bit of paper in yeah. about what you were compared to you know the the mobility of moving the dj console it being staged mm. and mm. you know being a more versatile venue space so things have changed mm. without a doubt um and they've got to be multifaceted to move forward but the figures that we've got now uh, are showing that i think it's something like in the last three years thirteen thousand businesses have been lost 
4,800 last year, of which uh, a huge proportion, about three quarters of them, were lost in the last quarter. You're joking me. So, so just going back, just hold me there. You said 13,000 nightclubs, you say? No, businesses in terms of licensed trade. Licensed trade. That could be a bar, restaurant or a club. Yeah. So the clubs themselves, in pre-pandemic, 1,446 nightclubs existed in the UK. Pre-pandemic? Pre-pandemic. So, called, so 1,450 and then... And there's less than 900 now. Bloody hell. And that's going to get worse this month and next month because the problem you've got is they haven't got the money to survive. Well, no one parties in January. It's always tough exactly. in the nightclub world, as we know. Energy prices have shot up. Yeah. People are doing prinks now, like pre-drinks and staying out till later and not even thinking about the clubs. They're thinking of going back to a cool bar now and staying there till two, three in the morning. Well, the, pro- the problem you've got is, is in, and this is, this is how things sit, costs have gone up 40%, right? So... If you think, I think the uh, one of the chief execs or the founder from BrewDog said, if we were going to go up in terms of inflation, uh, a punk beer would have cost 27 quid yeah, if we were in that. line with yeah. with energy. So when you look at the cost, it's 40% increase, right? We so s- give me an example. If you're putting on a festival for mm. a million quid, are you saying it's now roughly 1.4 mil to put on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you an energy example. Yeah. 250 capacity pub. Yeah. Right, in 2021, January, 36 grand a year energy. Yeah. 2022, January, 84 grand a year. Right, so... 2023? Uh, well, it's come down slightly because okay. oil and gas has been so a bit... So basically, double bubble, more than that. You said, what, 36 to 84? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're paying 36 grand in 2022 just to yeah. accommodate for the security deposit. Yeah. So what they paid the year before, they're paying in security deposit yeah. for the following year. We're now in a position where we're about two to three hundred percent of where we were over the last few years, but it's unaffordable. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about seven out of ten businesses that, given the cost position now, mm. are either losing money or barely breaking mm. even. Well, right? businesses across the country, seventy percent don't make money. No, they don't. But no. what I find interesting in the event in the world that we're in of throne parties and events and nightclubs and, and festivals, is that. People go into it thinking it's a sexy game, which is a it's a great game. <laughs> it's a great game. Don't worry, this is all I've done for 25 years. Yeah. It's a great game. But I've seen a lot of promoters leaving the nightclub world, going to the festival world, thinking they can smash a festival, nail it, and realise that it's bloody expensive to put on. And the chances are you breaking even in the first four or five years are quite low. Oh, exactly. I yeah. mean, I, if you remember, we had that really big surge where builders and developers thought they were going to take on That's pubs right. and clubs and things like yeah. that. And what they were doing, they were in for five minutes, sat there going, well, where's all the cash? Yeah. There is no cash, boys yeah. and girls. That's not how it yeah. works in this industry. You've got to work You've got to graft it. Oh, of course. You've got to graft every single minute. <clears throat> I worked out I've done 5,000 days just on Bournemouth 7, when you're constantly thinking about every single day, every minute of every day to build the brand to where it is today to come into year 16. It takes time. Uh, the people that the people that are successful in our industry are obsessive. Yeah. There's no two ways about <laughs> yeah. it. I, I, you know, <laughs> when I was when I was doing, I'm thinking to myself, right, that person's worth this amount of tickets. That's a, you, it's almost like you break it down into yeah. fives and tens. Yeah. You know, how many people do I know that artist is worth this? Yeah. You know, it's surreal that the intricacies that yeah. you work on within our environments and. You know, I've almost flipped. So for me, it's quite interesting because I sit around a table as a trade organisation and there are a lot of people around the trade at the, the table that are CEOs of my level that work within our sector but have never pulled a pint. Yeah. And, but they're dictating what's happening. I've yeah. sat there going, but that's not how it works how it in this works, industry. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how it works. You can't, you know, when you talk about tips. I mean, I've sat in front of CEOs. They're a really big trade organisation trying to talk to me about electronic music. Mm. 
And I sit there and it's laughing. It's almost laughable yeah, when you sit yeah, yeah. back and you go, yeah, well, what we want to do is, you know, base cut. And I'm like, yeah. well, you don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. Stop, stop. But do you not think that's killing it? When you talk to corporate companies, we're lucky we're still independent and we'll always be independent. Mm. But you talk to corporate companies, the people sit at the top don't know what it's like to go flyer in. They don't know what it's like to promote it. No. They don't know what it's like to talk to DJs. They don't know what it's like to talk to bar staff and actually find out from the ground what's going on. Well, they t- listen, uh, the, the, the really simple way, of, and, and this is quite an interesting one, is there is not enough representation of independent businesses within the political environment, mm. right? There are a lot of trade associations who are extremely complicit to the government's rhetoric and positioning. Even if it goes head and tails against the independents, they will do it given the corporate cash divide between mm. the two. My challenge is, is, and I always sit there and go, I'm not a Conservative, I'm not a Labour, I'm not a Lib Dem. I am what's good for the industry, yeah. irrelevant. Let's make it right? work. You tell me, what, yeah. you know, whatever's best in terms of the deal is where I'm going to sit, and I'm going to argue the toss either mm. way. But my, my, my issue is I sit around a table with a lot of people who are willing to allow a government to get away with what they do, or, you know, that's the best we're going to Can you get. put the brakes on that? You're like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Let's stop there. I, I, I'm going to lead this with my team. Yeah. So there isn't the corporate speaking well, with the government. Can you not get in the, obviously you are getting in the way mm. and going, hold on, you're talking oh, yeah, to proper people here. <laughs> yeah. This is proper people who have been around the block. Yeah. I mean, uh, listen, I, I've, uh, you know, I remember a couple of years back with a, a said minister at the time having, a, having an argument with him fourfold in front of CEOs mm. and, you know, almost trying to be, almost to a point, got myself somewhat excluded from some of these ministerial yeah. meetings off the back of me being quite direct. Yeah. And it is, it's a fine balance, but, you know, I've always said, listen, I am not going to sit here and accept what you're saying. The mm. same way that I can't sit with the, the current minister for hospitality and he says, well, you know, we can't save everyone. I said, but that's not what I want to hear from yeah. you. I'm not interested in I can't save everyone. I want you to do everything you can to yeah. make sure this industry survives. Yeah. And my issue with them is that acceptance is a problem. That's a huge problem for me. I can't sit there when I have phone calls from people in tears that they can't feed their family yeah. and you know they're doing their best for their staff yeah. and running 50 quid round to someone's house so they yeah. can put their heating on yeah. and we're doing everything possible. He hasn't got the same mentality. Mm. That's, that's a problem. For Do you me. know what I find in business though when you look at businesses like we said a minute ago 70% of businesses aren't making money. The way the world is at the moment it's going to be a lot higher in the mm. world we're in. Those businesses get to a point where they're going to have to keep selling shares within their business to investors, and all of a sudden they're diluting their shares, the shares, the shares, so they're worth nothing, and they're only being pushed out of their own festival or own oh. nightclub. But the thing, I mean, look, the perspective we have is within a high street is built up with independents, which are pivotal to the sort of creative culture yeah. of a city or a town. Mm. You then have the corporates, the McDonald's, and all the other bits that go along around it. What's happening at the moment is where those independents can't sustain their position because they've got no cash fluidity, some of those bigger businesses who have are being able to buy them up. So what's happening is we're losing the balance between independent and corporate. Mm. And when we start to lose that, we start to lose that creative culture, that drive, that that sort of entrepreneurial sort of resilience that makes the difference between Brighton and, you know, Sheffield. And, And that's the bit that's worrying. The other thing that's happening is something called the donut effect. Mm. So what's happening is in city centres, because of things like industrial action, because of the challenges in terms of coming into cities and the cost of going out, people are just staying in the the urban or suburban sort of areas and enjoying, and that's where businesses are flourishing. Mm. So city centres are starting to really feel the impact. London 
Uh, you know, have recently seen probably the biggest drop in licensed trade premises yeah. in, in the country. I want to go back there. You said like 1,450 nightclubs down to roughly 900, let's say. Yeah. Have you got any stats on pubs? We've lost, uh, I think, for the first time, and I've got it on licensed trade, um, is, it's gone down. We were at about 104,000. We were actually, for the first time, gone under 100,000 licensed trade premises. So what can you do you remember rough figures, what it would have been pre-pandemic? It was about pre-pandemic, we were about 110,000 uh, licensed trade yeah. completely across the board. So what we've done is we've lost a huge amount. But you've also got to remember you've got replenishment. So we've got people coming in and opening up. I think the way that they direct it is for every one open, we're losing three is the ratio. So, so every three we're losing, are we losing three a day? Not three a day, but for every, yeah. We were losing 18 pubs a day. 18 pubs, that's the figure I want. So we're yes. losing 18 pubs in the UK a day. Yeah, and we're losing every, I think it's one club every two days. So that kind of gives you a, a feel of where we are. I find it sad. Growing up in the nightclub world as a kid and going through that whole rave scene to the going into the clubs in the in the 90s to the clubs flourishing i remember being in 2000 2000 to 2008 mm. they were all about the super clubs remember it's like three, it, it, two and a half hours and let's go to the super club then it started reducing and reducing and now we're now i'm just seeing clubs dwindling everywhere mm. you know there's some of the most iconic clubs around the uk being closed down well i mean i'll give you some of the experiences i mean if you think about uh deltic group which was mm. the biggest nightclub operator it's a very social how many of have them. they got roughly uh, they had at the well, they've got about fifty four now, but they're they're buying a few more across the UK. Yeah, that was so. They're now a different company. So what happened is back uh, two or three years ago, they were in a position where they were getting support um, from the government, but not enough. So if I give you an example, those fifty four units, they were burning cash at about a million pounds a month in rent. Mm and 600 grand in overall operating costs, Jeez. so staff, etc. So 1.6 million a month. Oh and they were getting 156 grand from the government in support. <laughs> so they look, took, they look after the toilets. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what happened was they went bust. Yeah. So they were turning over 120 million a year. So turning over a ton 20 a year. Okay. Yeah, million. And it's costing them in pandemic, it's costing them 1.6 to run with the club closed. Yep. Okay. So... They were then valued at 80 million prior them going into closures and lockdown. Now they're worth nothing. They were sold for 10 million to a Scandinavian company, Lock, Stock and Barrel. Oh, God. And now Recom, which is yeah. the, the rejuvenated sort of position, has now come up and is obviously flourishing in a very, very different environment. Well, you will flourish if, if you're grabbing something. But, but it shows the scalability yeah. of clubs. If you think about it, the, the year before last, uh, or to the start, the end of 2021, they gave out this £6,000 um, grant to everyone in hospitality, which is great for a pub. You know, that's going to circum- doesn't touch the sides for, a, touch yeah. up for a club. Yeah. There was no scalability. Yeah. So, you know, the argument all along is how can you, do, you know, how can you do that? You're not considering the scalability of cost. Mm. You know, furlough, great. Probably the saving grace of things. But there were so many limitations. It was geared towards the core of hospitality, not yeah. towards clubs, venues. Festivals were left out in the cold. Yeah. You saw with the insurance package that were put together, pointless. Yeah. You know, I mean, what was it, 5% in the end? But, yeah. I mean, if you were a million pound spend, you know, who's going to dish out 100 grand in terms of cover? Yeah. 
you know, it just was never going to work. It, mm. it was, and we tried to refine it and do what we needed to do to mm. it, but it just was just not had no value. And how have you how are you seeing how are you seeing the restaurant world? Interesting. I mean, restaurants have had quite a big hit. Um, I think they've reduced by I think it was at the uh, Alex Partners um, camp. Uh, market sort of uh, tracker came out suggesting that second to nightclubs they'd probably had one of the biggest hit i think it was something like 2.4 percent contraction the challenge that you've got with uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that well they they the the market space in terms of the amount of figure uh, amount of businesses had contracted uh, by 2.4 percent so, so that's including independence and your corporates yeah that's right okay have we got yeah. any stats on independence the corporates is all great in here and there, but I just don't have the same feeling that we've got. With no, I mean yeah. the 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 challenge that you've got with some of the 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 independent figures were quite considerable. I think it was uh, when we looked at the figures, it was about a three percent for corporates or managed, yeah, and thirteen percent contraction yeah, okay. for independents. Okay. So if you think about the ten percent difference in terms of independence yeah. as a figure, and the contraction of the nightclub industry was about six percent, and then restaurants was two point four, as I believe. But it, it's interesting when you talk about things like the World Cup, which yeah. somewhat saved bars, pubs, etc. Yeah. It actually didn't help restaurants yeah. because restaurants Getting people cancelled. weren't going to go and watch. Yeah, so they were just had cancel culture, um, and it's, the big. And the big challenge that you had is they were setting up the cost for 50, 60 people to come and do sittings, yeah. and only half were showing up. Yeah. We had the same with festivals, if you remember. You know, we were selling out 10,000 tickets, and only 7,000 people were turning mm. up. Some of the biggest, you know, festivals and, and uh, events in the Why country. Why was that? Some... Why was that? Because that was in 21, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was some, somewhat around the health situation. Mm. I think people, you know, if they felt ill, they felt not right going or out. Or the fear of catching something at a festival. Exactly. Okay. There was a big fear. I mean, if you think about the Christmas period, this whole rhetoric around we'd rather you not go out killed yeah. Christmas 2021 and yeah. New Year, although we drove New Year still to be open. Mm. And then the following year, we had the same thing with the industrial action where it, it, it killed her. I mean, you know, <laughs> we couldn't have had a worse time for industrial action to yeah. hit. And, you know, we, we sat and we've had open discussions with the Department of Transport and representatives from the different uh, trade associations, but they just don't get it. Yeah. I mean, my argument with him, and, and I'll sit and be open about it, is what gives you a right that your industry is more, more important than no, mine? No, I agree. That, that's that's yeah. what I see. What yeah. gives you? I mean, everyone's like, yeah, but it's about solidarity. I said, tell that to the thousands of people that have lost their jobs yeah. and lost their businesses because of that 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 inability to get people into seats. Mm. That's not right mm. for me. People are probably looking at you as the dad. Help me, <laughs> help me, Mike. Help me. My business is going this. I've got no support. Help me. What do I do? Well, it, it's you know from from PPL and PRS to PPL. Uh, this is the uh, performing rights yep. royalties payments. Yeah. So, so give people listeners an example. So, for instance, if music is being played in a public space, yep. then you will pay a license to those rights holders. Yeah. So, for instance, um, uh, currently there's something called a special featured entertainment license, which, funny enough, has has gone up from January this year all the way. For the next seven years, will will go up gradually, which is horrendous, and is another sort of story. So, example that if you've got a festival, the PRS will want twenty grand, thirty grand. Yeah, it's, it's about up up over it's about three percent. I think yeah. it works out okay. at. So, PRS is slightly different. Yeah. Um, PPL 
in terms of recorded music is probably where we've we've seen the biggest impact yeah. so um our challenge with that and uh, sort of just getting into it quite briefly but ppl is where royalties are paid to people who have their music played within yeah. public spaces the challenge we have all along here is money is paid in from one side goes into a pot and then it's supposed to be distributed through the artist the other side the important bit is you need to track the artists who are being played in this side uh, yeah. in the um in the environments yeah. to really understand who to pay yeah there isn't a tracking system at the moment so the way that they do it is through a sample of 30 businesses or nightclubs and a uh, playlist uh, um review of radio Right, okay. So, as you can appreciate, Ed Sheeran, uh, Elton John get paid quite easily, whereas some of these up-and-coming artists don't get paid. So there is an issue between money coming in and money distributed fairly, and that's one of the things that we have a challenge with the SFE tariff, especially as they're looking to put it up over the next year for people who start their new licence. So, uh, and that's what, I mean, we've just got a solution. How can they prove that? You've got a venue and you've got to play in all these tunes and stuff. How can they prove what you're playing in that venue? Well, the challenge that you have is they they work it off a per head basis, right? So if you can... Let's do, let's do, let's, let's do an example. You've got a 10,000 or... Let's go, you've got a 5,000 event in a field. Yeah. How are they going to charge you? Did you say 3% of your... It's about 3% for PR. Of your what? Of your turnover? Yeah, so... On so, everything or just tickets? I think it's tickets. PRS is is slightly different than PPL. Yeah. Although they both get charged in different environments. PPL is works on a different sort of format. So the way that a, a royalties company or representative company works is they are able to collect royalties against their membership base yeah, okay right so as you can appreciate there is not one royalty company that covers all artists there isn't one out there right they cover a proportion of them but not all of them so if you think about uh, money coming in per head so if i'm a nightclub and i've got 200 capacity yeah. um i will then have a certain amount of pence per hour paid to ppl for my license mm. What was happening before, it was on average admission. What we're now looking at is position in terms of ingress and egress. Okay. All right? So it's a lot cleaner. It's the amount of people in there at one time. Exactly. Okay. So we can imagine if you're 200 capacity yeah. and you're just paying 200, you know, uh, two, 200 times that mm. uh, amount of money per hour, mm. it's going to be a lot more. So mm. that's been reduced, which is fine. The issue we have is as that money goes in, you've got a question. Where's it going? Who, where it goes yeah. to. So if you're only tracking through 30 sample clubs Mm. or venues and then the rest of that tracking information is coming from radio, that means it's inaccurate. So what we are asking for, and we've worked with um, Pioneer, DJ Monitor, within the um, uh, CDJs is a firmware update which allows you to track it up. and push okay. it through to a cloud. And DJ monitors take the metadata and they convert and let you understand exactly what's yeah. being played. The challenge that you've got is that PR, PPL uh, are not happy yeah. <laughs> with this music recognition technology because what it means is that the money coming in will just be paid yeah. out, as you can appreciate. And what was happening before is the money was coming in, 
it was being put in a pot not all of it was being claimed and some of that was going back to operating ppl and also going out to record labels uh, relevant to market share Mm. so there is a big issue with the ecosystem as a whole that needs to be you know redirected one part is obviously the tracking and information coming but the clubs will feel much better if the artists are all getting the right money but as you can appreciate if you run an electronic music space probably only 30 percent on average is being held in terms of the rights for collection by ppl yeah because it's so obscure in terms of if you Mm. go to a a deltic or a recom then you've got you know 95 percent because it's all commercial tracks Mm. so the challenge that we have is what representation under different musics and genres are there and what should be paid relevant to those music and genres or otherwise what you're doing is collecting 100 percent of everything and not having the rights Mm. to collect what are your thoughts on Emily Evis coming out, the owner of Glastonbury, to say our prices have got to go up <clears throat> because everything else has gone up? I think the challenge... That transparency. Yeah, I think the transparency... I think what, what you've, you've got to see is there's a 40% increase in cost yeah. right the way across the board. Some environments more, particularly in the festival sector. Yeah. If you take that, coupled with the fact that we've seen a 15 to 20% drop in trade overall because customers have got less disposable income right we're in a perfect storm the challenge that we have is if you look at the fuel forecourt when they dropped 5p off the fuel forecourt it took a long time for that 5p to hit the forecourt yeah so our issue is more the fact that there is direct cost impact and indirect cost impact direct cost impact is i know what my energy bill is when it drops on my mat the indirect cost energy uh, impact is through suppliers who are not going to pass that on as quickly as yeah. I'm going to do it for myself. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's a bigger proportion of our cost base. So when you consider that, that's why energy companies need to act quicker, although they're using an excuse of, yeah, but we buy it in bulk, so it takes a bit of time to get through. In but terms do you of the- think Emily was right in saying we've got to put our costs up for tickets I think, I th- and let people know? I think she was right in terms of the transparency I don't know the overall cost base, but I think transparency, I think, is key. Um, but she's in a very lucky position because she's got something that everybody wants. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for other people... 50,000 tickets. Exactly. So <laughs> I think that makes... But I, I think the transparency is really important. I, agree. I think the problem you've got is people disbelieving yeah. how much of an impact this is. That's yeah. why when I talk about it, I go 40% here, 15% down. Yeah. You know, when you talk 7 out of 10 not making money or barely breaking even... And the government talking long-term solution when we've got an immediate, yeah. immediate problem. But you can't, as a promoter, you can't go and whack 40% on your tickets. No, you can't. You can't, you can't go and whack 40% on your beer money. You just can't because you'll end up cheesing everyone off. Well, the thing about it is there's three things that are affected. Spend, dwell time, and frequency of visit. Yeah. It's as simple as that. When you have got an event or a festival, it's a pinnacle event. Yeah. People tend to be choosing that over yeah. cyclical uh, periods of going Weekly out. Weekly clubs exactly. or whatever. Because so, people are gearing up for a festival. Exactly. You know, you've got 10, 20 mates going, well, we'll go into this one on that date. You're gearing up for it. So I don't think that anything will change on that front. No, I, I, I think the, the festival is an event. People go there for a certain reason, yeah. you know, whether you go to Broadwick, Glastonbury, Warehouse Project, you know, Sevens. Yeah. You know, they go there for a certain reason. It's the day-to-days. But you, if you think about the cost inflation position and how it's impacted us, you then think of the donut effect in terms of the suburbs and cities being, you know, really struggling. And then you think about what the government's doing. It's almost counterproductive. What they're actually doing is saying, look, we've got a long-term strategy for growth and investment. 
we're going to be doing this over the course of the year in the March budget it's going to come out which we are concerned there's going to, nothing going to be coming back for yeah. us the one thing we need is a VAT cut yeah. we talk about 75% but what they've done is in one hand given and then taken Taking away the with the other yeah. Rob Peter to pay Paul uh, what, you're saying this the, uh, the VAT cut what are we after? I, I think it needs to be halved minimum so go straight to 10% go straight to 10% will that happen? It, there is an argument to stack that they should have done that at the Liz Trust period. And we, we, I mean, I sat with Liz Truss's civil servants for some time arguing the toss on all of those. Yeah. Three things we're after, the energy relief scheme, but not as a subsidy, as a cap. We asked for the VAT cut, which I think was important, by, by half. And then the, the other thing was a business rates. Now, the business rates has come in. The alcohol duty, which was a U-turn, has now been put back six months, which gives us a little bit of headroom. The VAT would make a difference, but it has to include alcohol. If it doesn't include alcohol, just ha- and I know that's going to go head-to-head with a lot of people from a, uh, a health promotion perspective, yeah. but we're talking about the survival of businesses here. You know, We're talking about a lot out there that have suffered in the last three, four years now and just need that little bit of hope and glimmer that they can yeah. because we could be a massive part of the recovery yeah you know? and I think we just nailed on the head that one word hope mm, that's to give people hope yeah, yeah. so would you, what would you say to any youngsters out there sort of 17 18 up to sort of 25 26 27 who want to get into the event industry festival industry step up speak to your local promoter go and see them ask the question you know show initiative yeah. um you know, the best, I, I mean, I was sat with a cohort um, the other way, it's Small Green Shoots, it was called. And they said to me, well, what piece of advice can you give me? I said, make as little mistakes as possible. Go and find out everyone else's mistakes. Yeah, learn off them. Right? Learn from them. Mm. Save yourself the money and the time yeah. trying to work it out yourself. Yeah. Don't be shy. Don't sit back and yeah. suggest for one minute it's an embarrassment to learn and find out what people have done wrong. Save yourself the time, get in, understand, listen, yeah. learn, be a sponge, yeah. but find out all the mistakes. And be a grafter. Exactly. And do you know what I said there? I, what, I, what will help other entrepreneurs who are in the events industry. If you're out there and you've organised a party or, or, or holiday for four or six people, or you've organised something that you know that you can nail, you can do that for 100 people, you can do it for 1,000 people. It's the yeah. same thing, just on a bigger scale. Yeah, it exactly. really is. If you've got those organisational skills and you're good with people and you're polite and you're kind and you get shit done, you're away in the events industry. Listen, I, I, I always say that the people that I always meet in our industry are people that people want to do things for. Agree. Right? Irrelevant of whether their position or whatever. If you didn't know who I was or I didn't know who you were, yeah. I know full well as a person and the way you come across that it's something, if you came to me and said, look, if you just your persona and the way you are would make me want to be around you yeah. and, and do that's what this industry yeah. represents yeah. you know that's what presents resilience yeah. and i always make it makes me laugh that um i did some show on bournemouth seafront years and years ago it was at the cajun zoo and we had a massive problem we had like a little stage down there which is like a little radio show and we had this dunk tank thing and my boss turned around and he said this and oh, we've got a problem we got no water for the dunk tank. And I said, well, that's a bit of a problem. So I drove back up to the Cajuns. It was out the back, and the fire engine was doing a piece out the back. And I went, listen, fellas, Do us a favor. what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he went to me. I said, do you want to save the day? And he went, what do you mean? I said, look, it could be worth a few beers for you. I said, you wouldn't go down there and just fill up. And do you know what? The fellas turned around and go, look, I'll just radio it. And he came down. They came down and filled it up. Yeah. 
But that's the difference between yeah. an event promoter, an opportunist, right. someone who who's willing to think of a way around a problem. Because yeah. it is, it is. There is so much to this. Well, that's what we are. We're problem solvers. Exactly. That's what we do. If, we, if you're good at problem solving, you can get into the events industry now. Yeah. Get us on LinkedIn. Get us on Instagram. We'll open doors for you. Uh, exactly. Mm. Mike, where are you? I've I've seen the stuff you're doing, the conversation we're having now. I can see the passion. I just want to bring that back a little bit. A moment. You mentioned the last two years, what you've gone through. You've had a few mental health things that have mm. hit you. What has that been? Well, I, I think I think one of the biggest challenges everyone faces is doubt. Are you doing enough? Okay. Uh, and probably the pressure in the last three or four years is keeping that consistency of balance because you've got to remember all of this is happening from home. Yeah. You know, I've got a five-year-old little boy that while I'm doing a radio or a TV interview, he sat in the background. Yeah. And, you know, when spiking came out, I mean, just to give you an idea, I did 37 interviews from five in the morning through till 11 at night. So when you think about things like that and the pressure it places on your family as much yeah. as anything else, you know, I, like everyone, I'm only human. Mm. You know, I want to do the best for my industry and my drivers push me there. But one thing that I've realized probably in the last six months more than anything is I've got to strike that work-life balance. Yeah. Um, I've got to realize that I have committed so much to this industry, yeah. you know, when I worked within it as much as representing it, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, the one thing I never wanted to walk away when I started all this was people thinking that I hadn't done enough yeah. or I hadn't kept that battle going. And in some respects, it was someone says, well, what is the NTIA? And I mm. said, well, look, the NTIA is a lobbyist group, a support mechanism, but it's also an activist group. But its roots are the industry, yeah. you know. So I think it's uh, – I went through a process of, you know, uh, have I done enough? Yeah. There were a few battles where we lost. There were a lot of battles we won. Mm. Probably some battles <clears throat> that people don't realize that we won in the background. Yeah. And we weren't as vocal about them because we were facing the next battle. Yeah. And within the industry that I work in, it's very proprietary. Mm. Everyone's very, well, I did it first or you did yeah. it. And I just sat back and I, the people who know me and are involved and have been an active part in the work that we've done and sits on the WhatsApp groups and listens to the crap that I yeah. come out with, know how much work has gone mm. into it and know how much we push day to day to day in terms of support webinars and all the other bits and pieces. So I kind of had to come up one with myself yeah. to understand that I'm doing everything possible yeah. within my, but that was a challenge at yeah. one point. What I can say is you've certainly done more than enough for this industry on bringing everyone together. Prior to the pandemic, it was known as hospitality. Now we've created the events industry. Mm. You've played a huge part in that and you've brought everyone together. Uh, listen, uh, the the one thing I want is just to do my part. You've done your part. No, You've done your you. part. And sometimes it has to have conversations like this to realise, you know what, I've done enough. Because mm. you can just, I'm the same, you can keep pushing and pushing and pushing. You've done enough. You've brought everyone together. You've got a great team around you and you've done the industry super proud. So I've got to take my hat off to you and a huge respect to you, Mike. No, thank you. And, yeah. and listen, I know you've been super supportive of us as well. And, you know, it doesn't work without people like yourself and others that have stood by us and, and continued that message. Yeah. And we'll continue to fight until we're out the other end. And, you know, we've got a little way to go. But Mate, the, the future's bright. It is. The future it's, is bright. It's if feeling... we can get through all of this. Like I, people say to me, oh, yeah, 2008, we had a recession. 
it is what it is. We'll deal yeah, with it. Yeah. We'll get through it, problem solved, get through it, get through it. Something will pop. And I think what's happening in the industry, everything is starting to just come around now. Yeah. You know, 23, 24, 25, and we'll be back to where we were, but in a better place because of you and all the wonderful people who have taken the ball by the horns. The big thing that I've learned from this is the value of community. Yeah. And the value of dropping the issues around competitive yeah. nature and understanding we've got a mutual cause. 100%. And, and for me, if I have achieved part of that yeah. bigger picture, then I'm happy. Mike, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. No, thank you. It's been great to yeah. be here, finally. It's been a really, really nice conversation. Where can people find you? Uh, probably the best friend I find me is LinkedIn, um, just under Michael Kill. They'll they'll pick up and uh, yeah, just just drop me out. Or we are the NTIA yeah. uh, at we are the NTIA. Or Save Nightlife is the uh, uh, other hashtag that yeah. we're we're under. Mike, thoroughly enjoyed this, mate. You're an absolute superstar for our industry, and I uh, appreciate you making the effort coming down here. Amazing. Thank you very much. You're for a your gentleman. Time. Absolute Good pleasure. Man. Cheers, Mike.